Hi, listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everyone left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with bereavement professionals. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. When I was growing up, anytime an adult dropped their voice into a whisper, I knew they were about to talk about one of two things, illness or death. Even before I really understood what words like cancer or suicide even meant, I knew that whisper tone. It was different than the whisper they used when trying to keep me from finding the truth out about the tooth fairy, but very similar to the one they used when talking about friends or family who were getting a divorce, losing a job, or some other type of not-fit-for-polite-company kind of talk. As I got older and became an adult myself, I thought people would stop using the whisper voice if there weren't any kids around. But I soon realized that no matter who was nearby, certain topics were still relegated to the whisper corner. Today's guest is one of the fiercest advocates out there for inviting people to move out of that whisper corner and to talk, write, or otherwise express their grief openly. Welcome to the show, Megan. Thank you for having me. This is episode number three for you joining us. Yeah. For those of you who are not familiar with Megan, her last name is Divine. That's D-E-V-I-N-E, just to be clear. Right. And she is the author of a new book called It's Okay That You're Not Okay, Meeting Grief and Loss in a Culture That Doesn't Understand. And she's also the owner and writer and publisher of an amazing website called Refuge and Grief. And I'll link to that in our show notes. And Megan, this is also the first time you've been on the show since we changed our name to Grief Out Loud. Mm. And I can't think of a more perfect person to talk to about talking or not talking about grief. In addition to your book coming out, you were also recently written up about, in a good way, in the New York Times reviewing your book. And you're just getting a lot of public attention lately. It's really exciting. It's fantastic. I'm so happy about that. And your work is reaching so many more people. What's it been like to have your personal story and this work, which you're really passionate about, be so public and be out there in this way? Yeah, it's kind of weird. It's an interesting challenge for a couple of different reasons. One, the the book is getting a lot of press, which is amazing. And I am so happy to see it doing well out in the world, because that means that it's getting into the hands of more people who need it. And it's really starting to change the way we talk about grief. It's always so funny to me when, when I do an interview with somebody, and they're talking about the book, but they clearly haven't read about why I do this work. Because they'll ask, so how'd you get into this work? Completely naively. And it, it, it takes me a second because I have like, you know, read that part because it's kind of a big story for me to tell just bluntly. And when I say, well, I was a therapist for a long time and I, I was moving out of that work and then my partner drowned and I quit, there's this really heavy silence while the interviewer sort of reels from that. It's a strange situation for me to be in because I, I feel like in a lot of ways I expect that people already know so I don't have to go there. But I keep coming back to like, oh, I have to go there again and again and again. And it's weird the way that I've found to tell that story in a way that's sort of encapsulated. It's well-boundaried and protected. That I can say this story in a way without even really being connected to the reality of the story. Almost like a disembodied experience. Yeah, it's it's the repetition and soundbite of it. So that's sort of the, the professional aspect of it. But the personal aspect of it, 
it's like I, I'm never far away from the reality of the situation and the letters that I get from people and the book reviews and the, the comments that I get through the publishing house about how this book is affecting people. There's an emotional weight there that makes my own story come back to me in different ways over and over. One of the phrases that I've been throwing around for myself lately is trauma has a half-life, that there are ways that Matt's death and my experience after his death, there are ways that that continue to affect me and continue to unfold in ways that I can't predict. So it's, it's a really, it's a weird thing to base my life on an in, intensely painful thing and keep my hand on it at the same time, all the time makes me think about there's lots of people in the world who experience grief and tragedy and heartbreak and they take that grief and they use it as motivation to do work in the world uh, and some in small scale for maybe creating a memorial for the person who died and some in large scale work of starting an entire movement and I wonder if that's true for them as well of how their story is what they have to lead with in mm. almost every interaction. And I actually think that a lot of us, certainly not everybody, but sometimes when you create something like this out of your own personal loss, it's a way to keep it front and center in a culture that wants you to put it behind you and not talk about it. I find this with a lot of my, uh, with a lot of the parents in my readership and in my, in my student body who are grieving the death of a child, usually from an accident, and they've started a foundation in their child's name or started some advocacy program. It's like they found a way to keep a legitimate way in the eyes of the culture to keep their child's story and their life front and center. It's almost like it gives you an excuse in this culture to keep talking about the person who's died because you're doing something with it. Like you found a way that would make other people comfortable, but then you could also still be present with your grief in public yeah. about it. Yeah. You know, we started off talking about the whisper corner, which is kind of my new obsession. I don't know why. What have you seen people do or say or how it might change them if they have had an experience in their grief where they do, they feel like it was relegated to the whisper corner, whether mm -hmm. because that's what felt most comfortable to them or because the way other people were responding to them sort of pushed them into the whisper corner. What kinds of changes have you seen when people do start talking more mm -hmm. openly? That is such a great question. So uh, I'm with you with the obsession with the whisper corner there's such a gag order on talking about grief in this culture. And my work is really allowing people to tell the truth about their own experience and reflecting that truth back to them. So it's it's really allowing people to take the muffle or the the, the muzzle off of what their, their experience is. And when you're allowed to tell the truth without anybody silencing it or making it more pretty or telling you it should be different than what you are, something really powerful happens. When you're allowed to tell the truth of your own experience, it changes it. It doesn't make it hurt less, but being companioned inside that truth is a vastly different experience than feeling like you need to make it smaller or more palatable or quieter or not so disruptive to the people around you. There is something really deeply powerful about speaking your truth and being as loud and messy or honest as as you need to be. I can get caught up thinking if someone's being open and expressive about their grief, they're talking about how hard it is and mm -hmm. they haven't had a chance to talk about how hard it is and, and what gets lost in there sometimes are the people who get to come out of the whisper corner and say 
there's an element of relief for mm-hmm. me or the relationship I had with the person who died was really conflicted and, and ambivalent and I'm struggling with feeling like maybe I'm not grieving enough and how powerful to be able to say that and be received as well. Yeah, that whatever your experience is, it's valid because it's yours. And I think that's a really good point that you bring up that there's so much weirdness in this culture around grief and there's that shame too, right? That if your mom dies, this culture expects you to be sad, but not too sad, not loud about your sad, but they definitely expect you to be heartbroken. They don't expect you to have relief. They don't expect you to feel ambivalence or conflict around that because maybe you had a crap relationship with a parent. So there's there's sort of even a hierarchy inside the whisper corner about what's okay to whisper and what's okay to not whisper. And what power there is in being allowed to claim the sovereignty of your own experience and not have somebody take it away from you. Well, speaking about telling the truth, I mean, this work has definitely put you in a role of telling the truth about your own grief. And I'm wondering how this advocacy work and and being present with hundreds and thousands of people through your writing, your grief course and your book and your public appearances, how has that changed your own personal experience with grief? I feel like I am more able to have no answers for things than I used to be. I like to believe that I've always been pretty good at holding space for whatever's going on for somebody, both as a friend and as a clinician. What's different in my own grief and with the thousands of people I've been privileged to listen to and witness is I'm okay to have no response at all other than my presence and realizing that that is actually what's called for. So I think my tolerance for my own helplessness is a lot bigger. Not needing to rush in and fix yeah, it or change not it. Not needing, not only not needing to fix it, but not needing to even offer comfort through the the words that I think need to be spoken. Does that make sense? Absolutely. That there is a present silence that, for me, is the the correct response. Correct for me. That I don't even need to tell somebody I'm sorry that happened. Right. It's it's more that I think my my comfort and my facility with reflecting somebody's truth back to them and letting that be powerful. I think that's more instinct now than it used to be. It's amazing, isn't it, how hard it can be to do less? Yeah, right? Because there's that hopelessness. There's that, like, we hear somebody in pain and we want to fix it. I think on some level we know we can't, but our our enculturation and our socialization and our care for other people make us want to fix it. And that dissonance between the two, that deep knowledge that we can't make it better, and that desire to make it better, they sort of duke it out. Mm-hmm. And we start feeling helpless, and nobody likes to feel helpless. And how how challenging it is, how difficult it can be to break that habit of fixing things for somebody or making it better. And the hard work that it really takes to be able to stand silently and bear witness and reflect somebody's truth back to them and let them have it. Yeah, that idea of withstanding, I think is so powerful and something we talk a lot with the people we train here to be present with the kids and the teens in the grief support groups of how can you work on the ability, like building up your emotional muscle to withstand that intensity from somebody else. Can you tell us a little bit about the most recent article that you wrote for the website Order of the Good Death? So 
I've had a collaboration with members of the Order of the Good Death for a few years now. And if you don't know them, you should really check them out because they're incredible people. And the, the piece that just came out on the Order of the Good Death website is about death positivity in the face of violent or accidental deaths, like things that are outside the natural order of things. For listeners and for people like me who don't quite get what the death positivity movement is, can you give us a short synopsis? Yeah. So the death positivity and the death positive movement is a movement that started with Caitlin Doughty, who's the, the lead there of the Order of the Good Death, to start making conversations about death normal and friendly and to talk about death as a normal part of life. It's very akin to what we do in the grief world, right? Like death in the whisper corner, like nobody talks about it or we're afraid of it. Caitlin and other members of the order work in the funeral professions where they're really letting people take back family control of memorials and burials and what are your options and sort of taking it away from that removed distance that we don't see all of our choices and we don't know what our choices are. We sort of just outsource it to somebody who says, you'll do this, this, and this. And there's a time and a place for that. But a lot of the death positive movement is about education and what are your options and what are the rules in your rules and laws in your state, trying to bring death care back into a family process instead of an institutional process, which is a really powerful thing to do. And so my work with them has really been around. So we're talking about death as a, a natural process, and we want to get comfortable with that. And and we know sort of in this culture, we're afraid to talk about death, but I think we're actually way more afraid of grief, especially grief around accidental death or death due to hate crime or violent crime or acts of war. Any of these things that are sort of outside our ideas of the natural order of life or a natural Western lifespan, the death positive tenants make a lot of sense if we're talking about, you know, a grandparent who died at the end of a long life and had what we understand as a beautiful death and, and we're sad and we can sort of fit it into our known world order. Like this fits into what we assume to be the natural progression of life exactly. and the end of life. Yeah. And it's not that it makes it easy and it's not that one grief is harder than another, but those deaths at the end of that natural Western lifespan that sort of go in what we think of as the correct order they don't fundamentally change our sense of safety in the world or our place in the world. And if, you know, if, if a baby dies or when a baby dies, there's that really intense dissonance because it's not, quote unquote, the way it should be. Or, you know, a young black man who's killed at a random traffic stop like that shouldn't happen. And those sorts of deaths, it's really weird when we talk about those kinds of deaths and death positivity in the same sentence. So the article that I wrote for the Order of the Good Death is, is how do we talk about that? How do we speak about death as something that we need to become familiar with and we need to be comfortable talking about right alongside our knowledge that weird and violent and accidental things happen and we need to find a way to talk about those as well. We can't make conversations about death part of our normal cultural landscape and not make room for things that reorder the world. And what comes to mind is we work a lot with families who somebody has an advanced serious illness. So that might fit into the quote unquote, like natural order of dying because it's an illness. But oftentimes these are people who are quite young. Mm. They have young children. And even for them, there can be this resistance to this idea of 
one the other piece I wanted to say too is I think sometimes positivity gets equated with acceptance. Yeah. You know, and those are two very different things. And so I was just curious from that idea of, you know, we talk about a violent death or a death of a baby, but for a, a dad who's 45 and he has cancer and he's like, I want to fight this until the absolute last minute. I don't want to be positive about my death coming up, but <laughs> yeah. I don't want to talk very openly about it. I want to be like fighting this. Yeah, there's so much in that. So for my working definition, which is not the be all and end all of everything, I would still think of a 45 year old dying or having cancer and wrestling it and dying from it. Like I would still call that out of order. Like that's not, that's not how we like to think of things happening. And that, that I love that you brought up the sort of the, the linguistic precision there of positivity. I have some trouble with that word too. I mean, I, I feel like a lot of my work is battling an expectation of positivity, right? Like if you don't find something positive in your loss, you're failing somehow. And that's garbage. Like what are the gifts in your grief? Right? We're a culture that is so insistent on finding something positive, finding a gift, finding the good thing. And some stuff doesn't have any positive slant to it. And that's fine. I mean, it's not fine that it, it doesn't have one, but it's, it's, it's fine to say there's nothing good inside this. This is part of the cultural whisper corner that if you're going to talk about grief at all, you're only allowed to talk about it with a rosy outcome, with some sort of gift embedded in it. And that that's just cruel. Whether we're talking about death, the death positive movement or like the grief revolution, that insistence on a happy ending, that insistence on finding some positive spin to it, there's there's really no basis of validity inside that. You you don't get a pass fail on grief or on your experience of death by how positive you can be about it. And that's not to say that lots of people won't find amazing opportunities for change yeah. and growth and transformation, but to have the permission to, to not as yes, well. Yes, exactly. And that, that is, that's some of the backlash that I get occasionally. I mean, overwhelmingly, I'm, I'm pretty amazed. Overwhelmingly, the, the support and the feedback and the connection that I get is, thank goodness you're talking about this. I'm so relieved. But occasionally I get hate mail and the hate mail is like, how dare you tell me that I'm not supposed to be positive or that I didn't find a gift in my mother's dying. And I'm like, I never say that. What I say is whatever is true for you gets to be held as valid and nobody gets to tell you what is right or wrong in your grief, in your own dying process, in your own illness. Like if you are living with cancer and you choose the battle language, that's great. If I'm living with an illness and I say that battle language doesn't feel good to me, I would rather you know use this language. I don't want somebody correcting me. Everybody gets the choice to live their life experience the way they live their life experience without somebody blaming, shaming, or judging them or silencing them for it. You mentioned a few action steps for people in that article for the order of the good death mm. of how people can be, I don't know what word you would use, advocates yeah. if someone is dealing with a death that is considered out of order or violent or somehow maybe not fitting very well into the death positivity mm. uh, way of looking at things. Can you give us a, a small window into one or two of those action steps? Sure. So I think the overarching action, and this is for what we might consider an out-of-order death or any kind of death or the, the grief that comes out of it, any kind of grief deserves to be responded to with love and kindness and acceptance of the speaker's truth. So that's for everything. 
And I think if you remember that piece alone, you're going to do fine, no matter what the grief is or the death that caused it. So there's there's the core thing. But in terms of violent or out of order or accidental or just strange deaths, I think one of the big things is the phrase that I used in that article is um, be like crows on the battlefield, turning towards what makes other people run away. I think especially when the death has been the result of violence of some kind, the surviving people very often don't tell the story of what happened because people freak out. They go into that silent corner even more deeply because nobody wants to hear the gruesome imagery. And that's okay. If you know that you can't withstand that, that is okay. And if you can be that friend who can hear those details and receive them and share them with the grieving person, that is an amazing gift that you can give to be able to receive that information. Along the same lines, there's there can be a lot of chaos after a death of any kind, but especially, again, um, violent, accidental, sudden, those sorts of things. There can be sort of a kerfuffle around um, what did they want for a memorial? What should we do with their body? Especially if there was no advance directive or, or wills in place that made the person's wishes clear. If you are um, versed in this stuff, right, the death positive community, one of the things they talk about a lot is knowing what your rights are in your in your state, in your province about what needs to be done with a person's body and when and what is in your control and what is out of your control. Knowing those things for your grieving friend or family member is a huge service that you can give. If you know how to speak that language, you can be making those research phone calls for your people so that you can come back to them and say, here are your options. Which one would you like me to explore more? That's a great addition to our regular list of like, do the dishes, do the yeah. laundry, walk the yeah. dog, have, you know, offer to look after the kids, but to be really educated mm-hmm. about topics that people are probably way too overwhelmed to start Googling on their own. Absolutely. And if you're not already educated, offer to become educated for them, right? Not everybody is going around researching, right? What are the cremation laws in my state? Not everybody does that for kicks. Some people do. But, you know, when Matt died... I had a pretty good idea of what was available in our area just because I am the kind of person who researches this stuff just for fun. Um, but Matt Matt died without a will in place. So even though his son and his dad and I knew what he would want done with his body in the event of some highly unlikely death, wider friends and family didn't weren't aware of that or didn't particularly care. And so there was a lot of interpersonal melodrama. And a dear friend of mine volunteered to make phone calls to find out what my rights were as an unmarried partner, what had to be done legally in our county, those sorts of things. So you don't have to have known this stuff already. You can offer to find out this information for your grieving friend or family member so that they don't have to go to Google. Yeah, and when you're with someone who's going through something so heartbreaking, having a tangible task to do yeah. that might have maybe puts you into the front part of your cognitive sphere mm-hmm. can feel really good to yeah. have that option. Yeah, tangible action in the face of chaos that actually makes things better for people is a great route to take. You said something a little bit ago about the grief revolution, and I'm curious if you want to say a little bit more about that. Yeah. 
I think of the the grief revolution as a sister movement to the death, death positive movement because I can't call it a grief positive movement. I just, I can't. But a, a grief revolution is something we really, really need in this culture, right? We don't do grief well. And by that, we don't mean the grievers. We mean no, the, maybe the support. No, I don't. I mean, I mean as a culture. I mean as a society. I mean as as people who want to be supportive to others. And I, I don't mean that when you're when you're a friend or when you're trying to support a friend or a family member, I don't mean to sort of point a finger finger and say you're doing this terribly. Well, probably you're not doing it awesome, but it's not really your fault. When all of our media, when our clinical models, when our entertainment models, when pop psychology all tells us that your job as a supportive person is to talk someone out of their grief and make them feel better faster, we can't really blame you for trying to make people feel better faster. You're really, you're really behind the eight ball if you're trying with all of your heart and with the best of intentions to support somebody. And most of the, most of the world, most of the literature around grief is giving you faulty information. The only way to start changing that is to kick over the tables, right? To overhaul things, to change things, to force conversations about the reality of grief and what we really need from each other. That is a revolution. So I'm thrilled about that. The the piece about understanding grief being in the wellness section of the New York Times for a lot of reasons. I think the biggest one is people want to talk about this stuff, but nobody wants to talk about it the way that we've been talking about it. Like we need a new framework. We need a new new framework, right? Because if I go to tell you about the grief that I'm carrying and you stick a platitude on me or you tell me it wasn't as bad as I think or you insist that I find the gifts, I'm going to stop talking about it. That doesn't mean I don't want to. It means the way that the only way that's available for me to talk about it makes me actually feel worse. People want to talk about the reality of their experience. They want to talk about the people who have died. They want to talk about their own reality of trying to live alongside that gigantic crater in their lives. And if we don't have ways to companion that, to hold that space, to respect somebody's pain, it's not going to make their grief go away. It's going to make them stop speaking and it's going to stuff them further into that that whisper corner, grief closet, whatever image we want to use here. And so people are desperate to talk about grief in real ways. And it takes people talking about it to get people to talk about it. When I was first widowed, so we're at, our, at the time of our recording right now, Jenna, we're at eight and a half-ish years, which is mind-boggling. The way that the culture has already changed just in eight short years is amazing. The alumni student body from my writing your grief courses, a lot of them have been with me for four and five years. And to see how bold and empowered they've become from that initial experience of being allowed and encouraged to tell the truth of their own experience, no matter what that truth is, the advocates they've become in the world, the conversations with other friends or family members or therapists that they have brought to the table because of the the power that they have felt, the healing that they have felt in being heard in their own truth. Like they are fanning out across the globe to open these conversations. And what they're finding just as just as I've found is that people are really hungry for this discussion. Yeah, it's really gaining so much traction. It, it really, seems. really is. And I'm so happy about it. 
Well, I'm just grateful for your work and how much uh, you've been a part of that, gaining that traction and getting that recognition and that awareness. Every time you come and do an episode with us, you go out and do something amazing. So (laughs) any ideas about what comes next for you? We're talking about some pretty cool events. There's an event happening in the San Francisco Bay Area in April called Reimagine. And that I, I won't be able to to sum it up very well because I, I'm new to them, but it's really exciting. We're doing this whole citywide event on death, dying, and grief conversations and bringing them out into the world. So that's something to look up. I have some really exciting news around that, really cool things we're doing about telling the truth and telling our stories out in the wider sphere. And it's called um, Reimagine? It's called Reimagine. So re and then um, colon imagine. And there's a sister event on the East Coast. I'm not entirely sure when that is. I think it's in the fall. I will also be at Omega on the East Coast teaching a workshop this fall on how do we show up for each other and how do we, how do we navigate pain in our own lives and in our individual friendships and relationships and in the wider world? Because I think, um, you know, this grief revolution doesn't just belong in our personal lives, but it belongs in the wider culture as well. You know, how do we talk about all of the ways that our hearts get broken? How do we talk about injustice and pain and exclusion in ways that affirm and support somebody's truth, even when we don't understand it. You know, I I spend a lot of time talking about grief specifically related to death. But for me, I feel like that's just the tip of the iceberg with how hard it is for us to hear things that unsettle us or that upset us or that we don't understand. And we've really got to start having those conversations. So uh, that's sort of one of the places that I'm growing into, and I'm super excited about it, just to bring this conversation about how to love each other better out into the wider world. Well, I'm so appreciative of you and for you coming and telling us about all this exciting stuff that you're working on. Thank you for being part of our podcast again. Yeah, thanks for having me. And listeners out there, it sounds like you can uh, hang out with Megan on the East Coast or the West Coast or online at refugeandgrief.com, or you can check out her book, It's Okay That You're Not Okay, available everywhere, Everywhere. pretty sure. And if you are joining us for the first time, welcome, and you can find any past episode at our website, dougy.org, Stitcher, iTunes, any other platform you might listen to podcasts. We appreciate you listening and hope you'll join us again next time. Thanks for listening. Music for this episode was written and performed by Layla Chieko.